Everybody's out of work or scared of losing their job. The dollar buys a nickel's worth. Banks are going bust. Shopkeepers keep a gun under the counter. Punks are running wild in the street and there's nobody anywhere who seems to know what to do and there's no end to it. We know the air is unfit to breathe and our food is unfit to eat. We sit watching our TVs while some local newscaster tells us that today we had 15 homicides and 63 violent crimes, as if that's the way it's supposed to be. We know things are bad, worse than bad. They're crazy. It's like everything everywhere is going crazy, so we don't go out anymore. We sit in the house, and slowly the world we're living in is getting smaller, and all we say is, please, at least leave us alone in our living rooms. Let me have my toaster and my TV and my steel-belted radios, and I won't say anything. Just leave us alone. Well, I'm not going to leave you alone. I want you to get mad. I don't want you to protest. I don't want you to riot. I don't want you to write to your congressmen because I wouldn't know what to tell you to write. I don't know what to do about the depression and the inflation and the Russians and the crime in the street. All I know is that first, you've got to get mad. You've got to say, I'm a human being. God damn it. My life has value. I want you to get up now. I want all of you to get up out of your chairs. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell, I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! Hey, hello, and welcome to Stuff We've Seen. This is Jim. With me is Teal. Um, just to start the program, maybe it's a little bit different. Uh, you know, I mean, one of the things that Teal and I, why we started this program in the first place was the past few years have been a little bit dire uh, for us, not going to lie, the coming of this particular president and what he stands for and what he has shown in the last few years, it was very distressing. And on social media, a lot of the conversation, you know, can get very political and heated. And the two of us felt that it would be great, even though, you know, we always have a lot of political things to say to each other. Um, and sometimes at the beginning of each show, I throw a little comment out there and make a little joke that we wanted to have an outlet to maybe just talk about something to get our minds off of the events, you know, something that we could just focus on in film, something we love. And that's what we've been doing. And, you know, our challenge in the last few months has been this pandemic. We like to talk about the new films that are coming out and not, you know. And <laughs> there really aren't any. There aren't any. And so that's been a challenge. And, we, you know, we're, 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 we're kind of focusing on other things. Some of the theme episodes, let's say, that we felt like we wanted to do but never got a chance to do because there's always some new movies coming out and yeah. uh, topics. So we've been focusing on that in the past few months. And trying to get through this pandemic like we all have, but then, and, you know, and just trying to like get back to whatever the normal is, um, but, you know, hopefully get back to movies eventually coming out and, you know, worrying about our friends and relatives that might be struggling in ways that uh, we aren't or maybe having our own struggles, uh, financial health otherwise. And we know that you as a, as a listener might be going through those too. And so that's why we try to at least provide an hour to mostly an hour and a half these days, <laughs> you know, a little bit of levity and entertainment for you to focus on. Uh, but, you know, there's been events in this country in the past couple of weeks um, and they were happening when we taped our last episode with Carrie. Uh, we didn't really largely focus on any of that because we were focused on the movies. But then since that taping, a lot more has happened in this country. And yeah. I felt the need to want to just do a quick little address. We're just going to say some words. So I'm going to kick that off. And then if Teal has anything else he wants to say, uh, he can say it too. Sounds good. You know, a lot of this has all happened. Uh, and it's funny. It didn't all happen because of one man, George Floyd, and his murder at the hands of the uh, Minneapolis police. It, it, it's been happening since this country wasn't even a country. Since 1619. Slavery came to these shores. And there hasn't been a moment of justice for people of color 
since that moment. It may seem at times that things have gotten better. Um, and then, you know, from a, I guess, a white person's perspective, sometimes it's easier to ignore that things are going on. And other times it's impossible to ignore the situation. We watch the news, we hear names like Manuel Ellis, Ahmad Arbery, so many others that are snuffed out for no good reason. Mistaken identity, uh, jogging in a neighborhood, you know, uh, being pulled over uh, by police. For whatever the reason, there is something that's supposed to happen in this country called proven uh, innocent until proven guilty. Yeah. Right. So there's a presumption of innocence. That's what our, our, our courts are supposed to be founded on. And you like to think that that also applies to the police. Uh, and we always know that the police probably don't have an easy job because they're involved in trying to, I guess, protect and serve, right? That's the, that's the phrase. Yeah. And I've been thinking about this in terms of medicine. They have a Hippocratic Oath, yes, which is an oath to do no harm and to help and save people. And I'm wondering if maybe it's time to revisit the oath that the police in this mm. country take, because obviously to protect and serve isn't necessarily meaning what it should mean. And perhaps the oath that a police officer takes and should abide by needs to change. And that's a starting point. Um, because we've been locked up for three months, as some people, I guess, <laughs> yeah. would put it. I think there were some things that were startling to so many people. Uh, a few weeks ago, we saw in Michigan a group of angry white, mostly men, but women as well, armed to the teeth with battle gear and assault rifles. And they marched up into a state house in Michigan, looking like they were going to assault. Um, it, was, it was very scary, the optics. Well, they, they had to close down the state house. Basically, there was that threat, the white man threat with a gun, the power that the gun holds. And there were police there, I guess, to do something. But I didn't see... Um, I didn't see batons. I didn't see tear gas. I didn't see rubber bullets. I didn't see even riot shields and helmets. Yeah, it's interesting. Were the police intimidated by these guns? Do the do these white angry uh, men have a point that their gun gives them power, or is it uh, an understanding between these policemen and these white powerful people with guns? I don't know the answer to that, but I know what I saw. Um, and mind you, the reason that these people were protesting with their guns and marching on, on <laughs> the state Was that they house. wanted haircuts? They wanted haircuts. They wanted to go to restaurants. They were just tired of it. Now, never mind the reasons why quarantining and <laughs> social distancing were happening is because we are now at a point in this country where over 100,000 people are dead because of a virus that hasn't gone away. Yeah, still, we're, we're still in the middle of this. Right. They didn't care. That wasn't important. I, it's funny, and I'm not going to, I can't go to individually to each one of those people that came to that state house and said that they're the kind of people that would say all lives matter. But I right. hope it isn't because they clearly all lives don't matter to them because they could care less about the people dying from the <laughs> pandemic. But this was weighing in my mind that then we have the explosive reaction of people when George Floyd, we all saw it. You can spin it any way you like, but this is a man, I don't know what he did or didn't do. I do know that he was dragged into a police car. There was some kind of beating that went on in there. And then he was pulled off onto the sidewalk and he was, his neck was sat on for eight minutes. He asked to take a breath. He couldn't breathe. And they continued and then he's dead. He was murdered. We all saw it. It's very uh, scary yeah. thing to see somebody murdered. And you know what? People of color have had enough. This is something that has gone on. They've known it all their lives. And when we talk on it, and again, I'm a white person. I'm a white male, right? And when we talk about what my privilege is, is that I don't know what it is like to have to worry about going up the street to do an errand, that this could be the day that things go wrong for me at the hands of the police. Yeah. 
Okay, that's what that that's the ultimate privilege I have is that I don't have to worry. And you know what? Nobody should have to worry. But that isn't the case for a large percentage of this country Americans. So protests have broken out. And I I I'll be honest, I have not watched a lot of I've not been glued to the set to watch a lot of footage because a lot of what I've seen makes me sick. Yep. And what makes me sick isn't the people protesting or even the fact that some people have gotten out of control and have have rioted. I've seen what I've seen that really disturbed me. And the first thing that really disturbed me was a white, apparently male, dressed all in black and a black umbrella. And he was calmly and systematically breaking windows of a business. And he was doing this in a very well thought out manner. He was caught on tape by residents who were telling him to stop and he didn't care. He wasn't seemingly afraid. Now, uh, there's been some suspicion as to who this person was right. and, and, and was he maybe police. I, I don't know that. I don't know what's happened there. But then I saw other footage of people similarly dressed yeah. starting the riots. I, you know, and again, it just kind of harkens me back to a very dark time in world history. And this is Nazi Germany with the Reichstag fire, yes. which kicked off was the excuse that Hitler used to start World War II. Yes. And that's what this felt like, an excuse to say, look at people are out of control. And that, well, I don't know, but the riots got fueled with incidents like that. And so when I saw that, those those are the things that disturbed me. And then to see the reactions of police towards protesters, this has really disturbed me. Um, and again, is it every single protest? Is it every single policeman? No. There have been moments that the police have come together with the protesters. But then there's these other moments that when I close my eyes to go to sleep at night, I see a woman being pelted with rubber bullets. Um, I was beaten with batons. Again, for just peacefully protesting. Now, the last time I checked in this country, when we had freedom of assembly and freedom of speech, I think you're allowed to go out on the sidewalk with a sign. No matter what that <laughs> sign says, you're allowed to do that. So when I see people doing that and I see policemen with seemingly no recourse uh, and, and, and no responsibility beating these people, it does lead me to question why. And then it really all comes back down to me through all of this. And, uh, you know, not to use the word blame, but it all comes from the top. Mm -hmm. And we have an administration where the president of the United States, whether people really refuse to admit it or not, is a criminal. He betrayed his oath to the Constitution. He was impeached for it. And he was protected and enabled by his Republican friends who would not even conduct a trial. He shouldn't be the president of the United States right now. Right. The pandemic has shown the world that he is incapable of handling a crisis and his inactions, his weighing what works best for him politically has led to an unknown percentage of the deaths in this country. Yeah. Certainly the virus went from it's a hoax and no, and it'll be over in a couple of days to over a hundred thousand dead and climbing. Yep. That is appalling, and this person is unfit to be the president. And then through these protests, what is disheartening is the president is not responsible for protests. He isn't somebody that can necessarily solve things. I mean, we had these incidents happen when President Obama was president and when every president, yeah. he couldn't stop it. However, when a nation is hurting, you want to hear from the leader of the nation that we're going to get through this. It'll be okay that I hear your struggle. He hears that we're hurting. Yeah. And then I, that he believes in the struggle, but yet this is for the first time in my life. We have, a, we have a president who basically takes the opposite. He says, yes, I hear you people of color and I don't care about you. As a matter of fact, if you're not with me, you're against me and you're an enemy of the people. And now your, pre your protests don't count. You're a terrorist. 
This yes. is the president of the United States calling his own citizens terrorists for holding up signs that say we don't want to die. To die. And that we support <laughs> black lives. They matter because they do. They're human beings. Yeah. We're entering a very dangerous time in this country where for a lot of people, apparently what appeals to them is totalitarianism. That's what they are leading to. That's what this president, he fosters, he enjoys. That's what he's about. There is no democracy for him. There's no room for debate. Now, I didn't like seeing those protesters several weeks ago on the steps of the Michigan State House with their guns. I thought that was was awful. But I did understand and I guess respect their right to protest. I don't believe in their protest, just like so many people, I guess, don't believe in this protest. However, you should believe in the right to protest and to not be abused, harmed, potentially uh, killed for your beliefs. But what I see happening in this country is that we have a president who's rallying a large contingent of his followers to say, well, it's okay if harm comes to these protesters because we don't believe in this movement. Yep. One of the most despicable, and that's really a saying something, by the way, with some of these uh, Republican senators we have, despicable Senator Tom Cotton. He's a veteran. Oh, no. Oh, oh. I don't know what his makeup is, this guy. I don't know, understand where he comes from. But he penned an opinion piece that the New York Times decided that they would publish Mm-hmm. where he basically was calling on the military to rise up against citizens of this country yes. for protesting. He was supporting the president. And I thought it goes beyond, well, this is his opinion and that, well, there's another side to everything and that right, well, a large right. bunch of people believe this. No, no, this is dangerous rhetoric that threatens the lives of American citizens and New York Times needs a reality check. They got one. Well, they did, but I mean, nobody, you know what? Somebody should be fired. You know, these yes. protests, if you want real real action, the person who, to me, is ultimately responsible for the behavior of law enforcement in this country goes to the top and it's the attorney general. Yep. Bill Barr. He's the top cop, so. And he and he he thrives on this and yep. he believes this. He completely supports the way that these protesters are being handled. He approved the gassing of yep. peaceful protesters to clear a path so that For the president, <laughs> he, told, he could stand around like a goon just going, oh my God, I have this Bible in my hands in front of a church. I don't know what to say. These are things that I can't just hold back on. Um, and even though this is a program about <laughs> movies and I feel that, you know, we could alienate somebody who decides that they like to listen to this program. I, I, look, what am I supposed to say? Look, at, I'm an American and I'm a human and I support humanity and I support the struggle that people of color have always experienced in this country and continue and something needs to change. And the sad thing is that this president we're not going to see a change there. In November, we need to vote these people out because the spread of totalitarianism is only increasing. And if we don't stop and say this is wrong, we're going to go on a path that may we may not come back from. And so that's what I wanted to say. And that's the issue with the New York Times is that they didn't stop and say this is wrong. Like it's wrong to advocate violence against American citizens or to call American citizens terrorists for expressing their opinions. That's what's wrong with what the New York Times did is that these things need to be stopped. So I have a lot of thoughts on this. <laughs> There's a few things I've been thinking about a lot. One is, what is the role of my voice in this? I could protest. I could hold a sign. So I've been spending a lot of time, well, not a lot of time, enough time, maybe too much time on social media where there's been some real serious conversations going on. Uh, and in my social media feed, I have people that agree with Tom Cotton. Yikes. Yes. And think that we should bring in the military. And then I also have people that are essentially anti-statist who believe that we need to completely eliminate the police and eliminate prisons. And 
so on and so forth. And those people are like cheering on some of the rioting. And so I've got this huge diversity of opinion. And I haven't been putting myself into it that much, except to call out people when they say all lives matter or something like that, you know, but part of my reticence to put my voice out there too much is I'm afraid of white splaining. This is comes from basically it's my own struggle to deal with my own privilege and what my voice as a privileged white man means or does not mean or what what my place is in this conversation. So I've been dealing with uh, I've been thinking about that a lot. And in relation to that, I've been thinking about our use of language when we talk about this. Because there's a big difference between a rebellion, an uprising, a riot, looting, a protest, all these different words that we use to describe these things uh, carry with them the language of oppression. We and and it's hard for us. We don't, you know, we're not totally aware of how we're using these words. But by using certain types of language, we're upholding and contributing to this racist system, essentially. And that's something that's been going on for four hundred years. This this way we use language and how it's been manipulated and. One place that I've seen this a lot, uh, one, one thing I've seen a lot is in reference to uh, the George Floyd murder is that a lot of headlines will say the death of George Floyd and others will say the killing of George Floyd. And those uh, seem those are very different uh, stories that are being put forward just in the choice of those words. So the media coverage of this has been difficult to sort through in terms of its use of language. Overall, okay, I am saddened by our history of injustice and I'm outraged by it. Uh, and this is, as you said, the sort of the 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 latest um, the latest outrage. It's we're at a point now where I believe we need actual change. What that looks like, I don't know, but I think that uh, I know the Minneapolis City Council is considering disbanding the police department, and I think that would be a great idea. There are other ways to deal with with, with these issues, and so yeah, my outrage is uh, my outrage is at the systematic racism. My outrage is at individual cops who think they have the power to commit violence. My outrage is at state-sponsored violence against citizens which we saw at the Lafayette Square fiasco and, and many other places. When I see the news on this or what I see in these images is I see an authoritarian police state attacking its citizens. That's what the imagery looks like to me. And me too. I do not support that because it's fascism. <laughs> And I think that we we have a president who uh, it, Robert Reich said it yesterday. He said, I've been avoiding the F word for the last three years, but I think it's finally time to to, to call it what it is. Uh, I've been calling it this for a long time, but, you know, saner people have, have been waiting, I guess. But Trump is a fascist. He has fascist practices and he's an authoritarian. He's a racist. And I have no patience for those who side with him during this uh, during this crisis, either one of these crises that we're dealing with right now. I, I was just getting to the point where I felt like I'm going to have to once this guy's gone, hopefully in November, then I'm going to have to reconcile with some of the people that I know that supported him in the past. But now with both the pandemic and the situation we're in now, anybody that still supports this guy. I, they're really dead to me. It's not a matter of, well, we have different opinions. No, 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 no. You just said it, the fascism. Are you for fascism or yeah. are you not? Because it's not what he calls himself. It's what he is. It's what he is. And he is a fascist. And that's the choice we have in November is, do you want to be a democracy or do you want authoritarian fascism? And, and I will say one of the big things that's on my mind, just in terms of the social media thing, stuff like that, one of the big things that's on my mind is the act of listening. And What? <laughs> it's a brief moment of levity in our show. See, I still, the humor is always going to be there. The humor, but yeah, the act of listening, and I posted something about this on 
social media the other day that basically didn't pay attention to it. <laughs> you weren't listening. Well, that's okay. You don't need to listen to me listening. Oh. It's hard. That's a hard skill. Active listening, by the way. Active listening is a really hard skill. And so I have been really aware of trying to take different people's viewpoints in and, and understand them. And like I said, I've got a huge diversity in my social media feed. And these are people I know personally who are on these opposite sides. It's not like a bunch of trolls on Twitter. Uh, anyhow, yes, active listening. I'm trying to really listen and learn and understand as much as I can about the black experience in America. So, so at times, yeah, I don't want to spout off, but when it comes to white supremacy in America, uh, I'm angry about it. There's so many ways to derail it over the last week. And it, it's been derailed by Trump. It's It's been derailed by the debate over what is the right way to protest. My point is that I feel like that debate over how to protest or whether uh, destruction of property is a legitimate form of speech, I feel like that whole debate is a distraction from the centuries of systematic racism and injustice. I agree. And I think that's what I found concerning when it looked like there was a deliberate and intentional coordinated effort by unknown white guys to go yes. out and start this because they know the conversation changes from what it should be about to something else. Yeah. And so I've been trying to not let my internal conversation get hijacked too much by how quickly these things get commodified. For one thing, you see corporations jumping on the bandwagon really quickly. And so it's sort of like it becomes this capitalistic virtue signaling through which products you buy. We're all in this together. <laughs> yeah. It's it's complicated because that 400 years of oppression and racism can't be separated from capitalism. And so I'm not, you know, going off on an anti-capitalist thing right here, but I have friends that are that take it that far and then I have friends that are complaining about the destruction of property and then friends who want war, literally want a civil war. And so for me, this comes down to a couple of things. One is acknowledging that history of pain and oppression and violence that's been going on for 400 years, knowing that it's real, listening to what people's experiences have been in this system, I think is really important. I think looking to ways we can change the way we do policing in this country uh, I think, you know, probably 80% of the calls the police get could probably be dealt with better by a social worker. And so that's one thing. And then sort of the third and final thing for me is Trump and the Republican Party. And I'm not letting the Republican Party off the hook on this by blaming Trump for everything, because they are also backing him up and supporting his campaign of violence against American citizens. The way that this president has conducted himself in the past three and a half years, anybody with a, with a sane mind would have divorced themselves from him. Yes. And the Republicans decided this is the way they wanted to go. And so, you know, when we talk about, well, the, you know, look, parties change the makeup of who they are, what they are about. Yes. And so just the way when people like to say Democrats, well, they they were, you know, the, they were the racists all along for <laughs> right. years. Well, that's And they transformed. Yes. And then a lot of those racists, when they were transforming, didn't like that. And they moved into a party that would accept them. And then what we've seen over the past 50 years is the transformation of the Republican Party from what was supposed to be sensible, limited government yeah. to a very vast government designed to benefit a very small amount of people. And, and to guard those people's wealth. They've turned it into a security force for rich people. Creating an alternate narrative for the people and supporters is turning into the same of, well, it's just a difference of opinion. So they've taken the facts of life and tw and twisted them. So yeah. now I think we're getting into this kind of sticky uh, political thing. And and I like I said, I, I appreciate you, listener out there, indulging us for just a few minutes kind of to <laughs> more well, than a cause few. Because I mean, we're not going to because, uh, you know, we're not turning this into a political show. This will be a yeah. film show. I, I guess what hopefully will illustrate to you how important we think what's going on in this country 
right now yeah. is because I do see the future going down different paths depending on what American citizens voting in numbers do. Yeah. I mean, it's just very important right now for people to increase their awareness and education level of what's going on in the country. By education level, I mean, just, you know, read the paper. It's important to be informed right now because we are at a really important inflection point in American history. And you don't want to sit this one out. Now, I don't know how we're going to segue this into a movie discussion, <laughs> but, but here's the thing, and maybe this was on my mind, and it's funny how I looked at this when I looked at it from like, you know, a very bird's eye view um, and away from the issues that were causing the protest, but just to see the reaction to the, of the government to a protest yes. it didn't like, yes. that it wasn't its flavor. Uh, I watched, I've watched a few films uh, recently. And oh, they, good. And, and but they were all about kind of uh, the, some of it historical nature, but it in some way involved when people were being oppressed by their governments, right? And also some of it has uh, some of the movies I've seen have to deal with fascism. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's funny; it's all the topics we've been talking about, and, and now I'm going to translate them into films. And I, I will mention a few films, and then I think that through films and literature and music, I think that's one of the main ways in which we can inform and educate ourselves and find common ground with fellow human sufferers in a way. So I think this is really important, actually. I think these cultural artifacts are really important to us understanding this moment and understanding our emotional response to it and understanding other people's lives. I I think literature and film can increase our empathy. Yeah. And we're not a book club here. We're a movie club. So we're going to talk movies. um, And and then on that note, so, you know, and again, what can people do in their part? So we always talk about the Criterion channel and it's, of course, it's it's a film lover's dream and it's, it's maybe a small thing, but what are they doing? They are offering and this is in front of their paywall. So if you don't yes. have Criterion Channel, maybe this is a great opportunity to check it out. They have put on their site now, they always have a, a good collection of interesting films from filmmakers of color. Yes. And more so than most others. And it's, it's just you're also going to see very unique uh, perspectives. And mm-hmm. our friend who's been on the show, Carrie, has talked about some of these films. And what they have done, Criterion Channel, they put a whole bunch of movies from people of color, mm-hmm. men and women, uh, filmmakers up there. And, and we were talking some films from the 1920s. Yeah, I'm just looking at right now. There's multiple films from the 20s. Yeah. And I don't know how, I mean, I'm going to d- see what I can dive into, but I'm very curious because, again, film is history. And at a time when, you know, black filmmakers were really oppressed in Hollywood and still to this day, getting a chance to see what was being, you know, created by people of color, I think is very fascinating. So people might want to check that out if you're looking for a place to start as far as films. Uh, One film that I'm going to mention that I watched and I've completed on Criterion Channel, I started it a few weeks ago, but I felt in light of this conversation, it would be important to finish it. Yeah. And it's funny because a year ago, when Criterion Channel was first going to be coming back, Teal, you mentioned a movie that you were looking forward to seeing. You were looking forward to seeing it so much that you still haven't seen it. I still haven't seen it. (laughs) And I forgot that you had mentioned it, and I stumbled (laughs) upon it because I've been hearing a lot about it. It was a Russian film from 1985 called Come and See, and it is a very harsh look uh, interesting perspective of World War II uh, told on on the Russian side, uh, Belarus, and the genocide that took place there as Germans marched through Russia mm-hmm. um, in their battles and conflicts. They made their way through Belarus, which was largely a peasant area in little rural villages, and essentially they destroyed 4,500 villages. And when I say destroyed, it wasn't the villages. They killed everybody in the villages. Right, right, right. They just mass murdered. And this film is, takes takes real incidents and stories and stuff and turns it into a narrative told from the point of view of a teenage boy who is 
in one of those villages and is very gung-ho to join the partisan movement against the uh, incoming Nazis. Right. And he gets a taste of World War II that is nothing but brutal hell. And it is a very unique movie, very low budget, but it's also shot uh, open frame 35 millimeter 133. Oh, neat. Um, so you have the square frame. Yeah, yeah. But you have the full 35 millimeter image, so it's very intense, and it is shot. It's not. I don't know. Probably wasn't necessarily Steadicam, but a lot of it was probably on dollies. Right. And it has a very uh, Kubrickian paths of glory feel to the camera movements. Interesting. And the closest I could describe the filmmaking style would be for anyone who saw the film. Beasts of the Southern Wild. Oh, yeah, yeah. So it feels like a World War II movie uh, made by Russians <laughs> in the sort of weird realm, uh, kind of almost in a magic realism way. Right. Uh, the Beasts of Southern Wild. It's noted for being very, very brutal. Yeah. And there's a lot of close-up shot reaction shots of people's faces in this film. It's okay. unmistakable when you watch it. You can't Interesting. get away with it. Um, and I didn't, you know, I've seen a lot in, in my time, so I don't know if I found it as brutal as some had made it out. However, the last, say, 40 minutes of the film, I think are going to be very hard for people to take because okay. it focuses on an incident and just the insanity of it all, the length and the, just the torturous feel to it is going to be more than I think a lot of viewers can handle. Okay. And it was it was very tough. I watched it, finished it late last night. But you get a very unique perspective because one of the questions I always have with World War II movies, right? We talk about experience. Well, American yeah. filmmakers, you get the American experience most of the time. You don't often get the German experience. And very rarely have I ever seen the Russian experience. Yeah. So to get the Russian experience... That was pretty powerful. And even though there may have been a little uh, propaganda-ish for well, kind I'm of sure. you yeah. know, the, the spirit of communism rising over fascism, that was what was an interesting angle because right. there makes a really strong case about what fascism is. Uh, and, and it's, you know, it's hammered home pretty hard right. in this movie. But there's also some visual things that are added to like sort of the lexicon of World War II movies that I've never seen in just how – Strafing bullets are handled in a field at one point with these weird, almost fireworky red flashes shooting across a, a, a field. And it, it's there's just things that when I know you see this movie, Teal, you're going to be like, I, I've never seen a movie like this. Okay, I'm really looking forward to it. And and part of the reason I was interested in this movie, this is something we'll get to on another show, but I'm I'm sort of working on putting together a, a subgenre of children and teens in traumatic situations like war. This is one that would be high in your list. Yes, this is and and there I mean it, there's a lot of films that are, a lot of children in war and fascism, you know, like uh, Pan's Labyrinth, say. That's a good subgenre that we should tackle. But you, I think that you, in order to do that, you got to oh, see. I've got to see this. Yeah, yeah, it's a tough film. I also really want to see last year's uh, The Painted Bird. Is this a brand new movie? Yeah, it's a brand new movie. It's based on a novel by Jerzy Kaczynski, and it's about it's about a little boy in World War II kind of surviving on his own in the wilderness and as the war goes on around him. So that's that's a new film that just came out uh, last year. I don't know who made the film. I think it might be Polish. I'm not sure. On my sort of uh, theme, and this was uh, involves World War One. Now, several episodes ago, when yeah. we were doing Academy Award films of the 70s, I mentioned one film in 1971, Nicholas and Alexander, yes. or Alexandra. And it's about the last Russian czars, um, the Romanovs. And I saw this film in the 80s. I think I probably rented on VHS or taped it off a of cable. Right. So I saw a pan and scan copy. And my thoughts at the time were as like a 15-year-old thinking this is going to be a bore and a slog. But I found it, oh, you know, it was kind of an interesting little – it did it in three hours. It gave a way to kind of tell how did the Russian Revolution start right. kind of thing. and. 
what happened to the Romanovs. And I thought that was fascinating. Um, but I never saw it again, never had any interest and yeah. then largely forgot even what it was about. And I feel that this is a movie that's really been forgotten and I don't know why. Interesting. But you, you, you know, you're hard pressed to find this film. You're not seeing yeah. deluxe Blu-ray editions come out of uh, Nicholas and Alexandra. <laughs> and lo and behold, Amazon Prime, it, it was showing up there. Oh, and I was curious, as as you know, like yeah. uh, a few weeks ago, I was curious to rewatch Reds. Yes, <laughs> and so yes, I guess yep. I just find I find that the the Russian Revolution is fascinating, and it's also uh, it's very complex. Yeah. And I can't say I fully understand it all and understand the conditions that uh, brought about you know the Bolsheviks and even like the events of World War one and trying to really understand all those things so anytime I get a chance to see a movie yeah. about that I'm interested so I watched this film and it was very fascinating because 1971 this film feels dated even for 1971. Oh, interesting. It's that sort of classic. We're making big epics and about a big topic and it can be a little stagey, right, a, little, right. a, little, a little sloppy. In 1971, you know, it was changing. The game was changing and this felt really like an artifact. Right. It did feel like a crib notes or, uh, you know, cliff notes version of events. Right, right. Uh, probably very, you know, condensed and dramatized in order to make a point. And there was a lot of time, way too much time in the screenplay focused on the son who had hemophilia. Did you, you knew this, right? That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a, that's a famous uh, aspect of yes. that they had, you know, they were waiting for a male heir. They had three right. or four daughters. I can't remember. Um, I just watched a movie and I still can't remember. And then he finally had a male heir, but had hemophilia and it was from the mom's side. So there was a lot right. of guilt there and now protecting when there really wasn't any way. And they used the screenplay at least to help show like the de- why there was the devotion to um Rasputin. Yeah, it, they showed the devotion to Rasputin because you know he had maybe healing powers for right. the sun and all this other stuff, and he became her confidant. However, what it does, it doesn't really go into tons of detail on World War One, other than like oh events are happening, but it does show Franz Ferdinand getting assassinated. Oh, cool. And what I thought was interesting, because not no sooner do I watch this that I suddenly saw, you know, the protests happen. And, right. And when I saw again, I go back to that one image of this white guy all in black. Yeah. Creating nuisance, right? He's starting, and I watched a coordinated effort by the same yep. group of white. What I was realizing was just the same thing that was happening with World <laughs> War One. A powder keg explodes, yes. right? The whole uh, continent has been fighting this oppression yeah. and then an incident sparks a revolution yeah. um which was you know it starts with world war 1 but then russia hadn't finished uh fighting one war right and then now it's jumped into this other war and the citizens who were starving they were sick of fighting these wars <laughs> <laughs> you think and then uh, the czar goes off and you know is kind of like playing like troop commander and he disappears for extended periods of time leaving his wife in charge and lots of rumors start to go with about her and Rasputin and you know eventually it boils up and simmers and so it's a movie that's kind of you know it's really watchable 3 hours yeah. and, I, and I did like you know it was never boring but it just feels very old fashioned. Right. And they just, when they say they don't make them like that anymore, they really don't. <laughs> they really don't. I, uh, I kind of wanted to, I mean, it, it's Franklin Schaffner, right? Yeah. And so when he was filming this movie, he wasn't able to accept his director award for Patton. Right. Because he was filming it. And it was shot by David Lean's frequent cinematographer, Freddie Young. Oh, yeah, yeah. So it's interesting. In the hands of Lean, who was always going for grandeur. Yeah. And he was really going for relationships and other things going on around the turmoil of war. Right. Schaffner had none of that finesse. Even from the lighting of... Uh, 
of Fred Young. It just didn't work. <laughs> Inter- interesting. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, there's a thing that, like, you know, the year before, Fred Young won Best Cinematography for Ryan's Daughter, which right. is another interesting film. It was already, again, 1970 was showing how David Lean wasn't fitting in with the changes going on. Um, and it's shot beautifully with, like, uh, in 70 millimeter with big arc lights and it has a very oh, cool. cool classic style of, of look to it. But then you go into Nicholas and Alexander and you've got that arc light uh, lit cinematography and it just feels very much like this must have come out in 1960, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> but I just thought it was, you know, again, it was fascinating to watch a film about uh, the people, the citizens revolting against yeah. an oppressive government, I think was the theme. Um, and how out of touch the Romanovs were, because it's always the events that are gritty and real, they're juxtaposed with the Romanovs living sort of their life of, of luxury. Right. Okay. It also features the very first performance in a movie um, playing Trotsky, Brian Cox. Oh, really? <laughs> I'm looking at this guy and I'm like, that guy looks like a young Brian Cox, but it can't be. It was. Also featured one of the very first performances of Ian Holm. Oh, interesting. Okay. So, you know, you watch a film like this and you get these little delights of like actors that you're you're like, <laughs> I know, I know that person. And you're shocked because, you know, Brian Cox really didn't come on the scene until the 80s. Um, right. When he played the first Hannibal Lecter. And then, uh, which was before, by the way, for people who are like, what? Uh, if you're not familiar, Silence of the Lambs was not the first movie with Hannibal right. Lecter. Manhunter by Michael Mann was. And they uh, changed his name slightly. But uh, yeah, Brian Cox was very creepy as Hannibal yes. Lecter. Anyways, um, so I saw that film. And then as a third film about a different type of oppression and injustice, and this is American Injustice was this movie from 1976, Martin Ritz, The Front. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Have you seen The Front? I have seen The Front about blacklisted writers. Yes. Stars Woody Allen, right? It does. And he's basically a lowly cashier and he runs numbers basically for the mob. Yeah. And there are guys that he got to know from, you know, working in this uh, restaurant that were writers and good friends, and they're all caught up. They're, they're uh, New York writers for TV. Yeah. And TV in the 50s was a big thing, right? It was becoming oh, yeah. the next medium. And the government was very concerned about communists coming into your living room and corrupting you. And the movie, you know, maybe it was a bigger deal in 1976. It's a little bit dated, I would say. But it's still very sinister yes. in what the government did ruining lives for kind of ridiculousness. Yes. Um, And I think the movie does a really good job of hammering home the injustice there. I think that's true. Yeah. I actually know uh, of a friend whose father was a screenwriter during that and uh, his career was ruined. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I could go. (laughs) I could go into detail. Well, actually, I will. I'll tell this detail because it's so strange. Okay. He was blacklisted and- and she remembers this uh, when she was a little girl. She He went into his office to kill himself. Oh, my gosh. His family was outside the door, like knocking on the door. He fell asleep. And while he was asleep, <laughs> this is so strange, it, but it's a true story. It, while he was asleep, he had this dream that he was getting into a car and he was worried about the hot seat burning him. And then he looked down and it wasn't hot because there was like a towel over the seat. So he woke up from this dream with this idea of making terry cloth seat covers. Okay. Which <laughs> which he then did. And and that is what it became the livelihood for the family because he couldn't be a screenwriter anymore. That is crazy. Yeah. But it was a very real thing and a lot of people yes, it was a sort of a totalitarian anti-free speech uh the whole HUAC thing. Yeah. So anyhow, that yeah, the front is cool. Yeah. So I mean, and that, by the way, that it's on uh, Amazon Prime, which are, a little segue. But this is kind of uh, interesting. Amazon Prime, 
they were, or Amazon Studios, yeah. was for a time in the Woody Allen business. Yes. And they had made the last few movies that, you know, and he was under contract, this thing, and they got him to do a series, which was honestly, uh, the series that he had is, is garbage. Yeah, I never um, saw it. It's terrible. And, and the movies he's made for them have not been very good either. Yeah. He was making this last film on a rainy day in New York. I don't know what it's called. But then, you know, the Me Too movement hit yeah. and accusations again, you know, flew up and, you know, we're not going to talk about Woody Allen, but but long story short, then Amazon, you know, cut ties with him. Oh, okay. I didn't realize that. They wouldn't release it. So his film is unreleased in, in America. Right. It's been released a couple of places. So, and I'm not going to get into like the debate of Woody Allen. I still think yeah. we should talk, talk about him at some point. This is not the show for it. That's a whole other topic. But here's the thing that I think is strange. And I understand how these things go and they probably just buy a bunch of films, but like, right. is that they won't release that film or even just kind of sneak it under there. However, they will promote and put up on Prime films like The Front, which he didn't direct, but he's right. in. And other things like Annie Hall was up there recently and other Woody Allen films. So it's so it's not, I guess, a total no Woody Allen. They'll put his movies right. up there, but just not his new movie. It doesn't make any sense to me. And they still keep up his other films that they produced for him. You know, I guess you either go all in or or don't go in at all. I, right. I don't know. I, it's just weird. Interesting. So it's just a weird side note. Now, you know, those are what I've seen recently. I've got a few movies in the works that I haven't seen the whole thing. Have you seen anything or is there any other films that you thought you'd want to add to the discussion? One film that we talked about sort of at length maybe a year ago, I just thought I would bring up again because I've been thinking about it a lot over the last week is Hunger. That's another film that I think in light of the conversations we had at the start of this program, yeah. people really should check it out because I too thought a lot about hunger as I thought about the actions that some of the police have taken in this, yeah. uh, in these protests and wondering what it must be like for them when they pull off the uniform, yes. <laughs> take off the battle gear and go home at night. Yeah. What's going through their minds? Yeah, I've definitely had those thoughts. So that's a movie I've been thinking about. I, I did see a couple other movies. I don't know. They don't really fit with this theme, but I saw Knives Out. And, and, and I had really liked that. There was It was on my, it was like number 10 for my best of, but then I moved it off because I liked, uh, you know, Portrait of a Lady on Fire so much. Yeah. But what, what did you, th what were your thoughts there? You enjoy it or? I totally enjoyed it. I thought it was a great entertainment. Like the fun, the fun love whodunit genre is not a genre that happens too often anymore. It, it isn't. And it's, it was really fun. It totally, yeah, just a totally enjoyable movie. And I loved the ending. And, and, you know, Daniel Craig is one of those actors that you, he kind of has that reputation by design that he just doesn't look like he's ever having fun in a movie. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, but he does in this movie. <laughs> yes, he certainly does in this movie. And I like that. I like to see Daniel Craig just hamming it up. Yeah. No, and everyone's hamming it up in that movie, which is yeah. part of the whole fun of it. And it's appropriate in the nature of this film. Yes, it is because it's it, it, yeah, it's it's a goofy movie. Yeah, Michael Shannon's great. Jamie yes, oh, Michael Shannon's hilarious. <laughs> I love Michael Shannon in that. <laughs> yeah, and you know, one thing I thought was interesting in Knives Out is there's a, there's a very brief political conversation. Yeah, but it's also pervasive as the theme. Of the it's movie, pervasive yeah. as the theme, but it's just, you know, I was, it, it was unexpected to me because I was thinking, you know, it's just a self-contained joke or whodunit or whatever. But the fact that it actually is political was unexpected to me. Oh, okay. I, I did know that there was some political angle, but whenever I hear, you know, sometimes you can't help it when you're yeah. looking at movies that you hear these things when you haven't seen them. And I just tried to like avoid any spoilers. So I did walk into the movie not really knowing much about yeah. what was going to happen. And that's really part of the fun of that film. The less you know, the better. The less you know, the better. Exactly. And I knew very little. I'm glad you liked it. Yeah, I liked it a lot. Uh, I saw two other movies. Uh, I saw this movie, The Lodge, which I think you watched and didn't finish watching. Yeah, that was one where my wife, she put it on. I was sort of sitting on the couch background and I was like looking up from my phone, deciding whether or not I would have interest in it. Yeah. And I'm like, this is horrible. And at some point my wife agreed and said, yeah, this is just not, I maybe I'll get back to it. But she did not. Yeah. And so I don't think you stayed long enough for the twist. 
it's an awful movie. Um, I I do have it's it's like a micro budget bottle movie, which is and, and it has cult stuff. And those are all things I like. So it checked all these boxes for me. And I was trying really trying hard to enjoy this movie and find good in it. And it just kicked me in the stomach. You got to see the Alchemist cookbook. OK, you got to. Because you love that you, it's everything you like in this yeah. micro budget uh, bottle movies, but it's actually good. <laughs> yeah, this one was not good. So then I also saw a movie, a new movie. Well, you saw a new movie, but you've been busy, my friend. I was kind of in the mood to watch stuff blind, right? And so oh, okay, that's, yeah. that's why I saw the Lodge movie because I wanted to see something blind. Got it. And this movie I picked also because I wanted to see something blind, but it's a new movie. It's called Vivarium. I have never heard of this. It's with Jesse Eisenberg and Imogen Poots. Oh, you, you strike me as a Poots person. <laughs> yeah, I like her. She was in the green room. Yeah, so this movie just came out, I don't know when exactly, but uh, it's for rental on Amazon. And it's a little indie movie. I don't know. It's, it's, a, it's an indie sci-fi, fantasy, science fiction, suspense movie. Okay. And, you know, it's not great. I can't highly recommend it, but it, uh, again, checked some boxes for me that I really like. And it has, I don't know how they did this, but it has a kid in it. And I don't know if the kid is acting or if they dubbed his voice. Okay. <laughs> but this this kid does does these voices. He imitates the other characters. And he does it so perfectly and so spot on that I couldn't believe that the child actor was actually pulling it off, that they may have had to dub him or something. So I don't know what happened. Hmm. But his performance, this kid's performance is amazing. And what's this movie called again? Vivarium. It's about this couple, these two, Jesse Eisenberg and Imogen Poots, and they go to look at a house in a housing development, and the real estate agent just takes off on them and leaves, and they start trying to get out of this, and they can't get out of the housing development. That sounds kind of interesting. The, the <laughs> I think your wife would like it. Yes, I think she would. Yeah. Uh, but this actually does sound interesting. Yeah, yeah, it's it, I I totally enjoyed it. I liked it quite a bit, but it's not something that I would highly recommend. I think, you know, I would give it maybe a 7 out of 10. 7 out of 10. That sounds like a good recommendation to me. Maybe maybe a 6 and a half. Okay, not 6 and a half. Okay, <laughs> Vivarium. I recommend it to the right type of audience. I I think a lot of people are going to not like it for I don't know. I mean, I guess maybe the ob the message about suburbia and stuff is a little obvious. I like I like how you you recommend movies and then you try to talk yourself out of recommending. <laughs> I I recommend this movie, but well, you know what? I like I don't really want to recommend it to anybody. Maybe you just skip well, it. Or well, maybe you shouldn't. I'll let you decide, but don't blame me because it's kind of a mediocre movie. I understand. Like these movies, you know. I mean, we spent a, a couple episodes ago. We spent a lot of time talking about the assistant, which it. it at best, it was a mediocre film, but I thought it was worth talking about. Yeah, and this movie, uh, it, I think it's worth seeing. It's it's fun. I I like these kinds of sci-fi things, so I told I, I don't know. I enjoyed it. Uh, I thought it was fun. I thought it was interesting. I liked where it ended up going. Uh, this kid's performance is amazing. So I don't know if you're looking for something that uh, is new. This is a new movie. It just came out. All right. And, uh, you know, for anybody out there that happens to live in the, the Pennsylvania area, uh, the Mahoning Drive-In that we talked about uh, many, many moons ago, like back in the, mm -hmm. the fall of last year, it's it's actually open. Uh, it's got different rules, you know, for social mm -hmm. distancing. But uh, next weekend, which would be the weekend of like the 11th, I think, of June. Yeah. They are going to be doing Mad Max weekend costumes, whatnots, and they're going oh. to show- all in 35 millimeter, by the way. On Friday, they're showing Mad Max and the Road Warrior. And then on Saturday, they are showing uh, Thunderdome, which isn't mm -hmm. my favorite. And then they're showing Fury Road. But they're showing Fury Road in 35 millimeter and the Chrome Black and White Edition. That is awesome. In 35 millimeter. Yeah, I didn't even know such white. a thing existed. I know. I, I want to go and see that so bad. But I think... Amazon Prime has uh -huh. is, is is got it for rental, the Chrome edition. So I am probably oh. going to rent it because both my wife and I really want to see the black and white. Version, yeah. Which again, you know, doesn't take anything away from the color version, but it's the one that the director 
uh, George Miller thought is the way in his head he envisioned it. Yeah. Okay. One thing I wanted to say, sort of finishing up our what we started the show with. Okay. We're coming full circle. Here we go. We're coming full circle. And there are a lot of great movies that specifically tackle racism, racial injustice, the the history of the black experience in America, the, the current black experience in America. There there are a lot of great films that do this. And, and, and I think that's great, uh, but I'm not going to just list off a bunch of those because I think other people have done a better job of it. So just Google films about the black experience and there's there's just a whole bunch of great stuff so all right well uh you know stay safe teal stay positive as you can enjoy your family and you know do the right thing which is just funny we talk about that and i did put the music from uh, fight the power last yeah. week of the show so again if you haven't seen do the right thing it's another movie you should really check out um it's great and spike lee's got a film that's going to be on netflix in yes. any day now yep. uh Def- defy bloods and i really want to see that i saw the preview for it and it looks unbelievable yeah have you seen the trailer for that no no no. i don't i try not to watch trailers i just want to you know i mean spike lee there's been a he's had a tough road for years like making weird experimental movie like just yeah. that his footing and i kind of said well is the spike lee that i knew gone and he came roaring back with black klansman yes and this movie really looks like uh vintage spike lee really just doing a lot of stuff and uh, i'm very excited to watch it i hope it's good uh so that'll be something that hopefully in the next couple of weeks when it comes out and I can see it, we'll talk about it. Okay, looking forward to it. All right, uh, you know, go watch some stuff, some important stuff on yeah. uh, on various streaming services, people. Okay. Goodbye. Bye-bye.